Welcome to the podcast Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to Adelante Leadership. I'm your co-host, Tania Hino. Season two is a series of episodes that encourage and inspire you to embrace the power of your leadership. We are leaning into the knowledge from season one's previous incredible guests. Teresa Mosqueda is a Latin community leader from an early age. She has practiced her leadership as labor organizer for living wages, worker protections, health equity, and immigrant rights. Her statewide leadership efforts garnered several honors of achievement, such as her work to provide health insurance to children in Washington state. She was elected to the city of Seattle council in 2017, where she continues to serve and where she has championed more equitable voting participation, low wage worker protections, and includes people most directly impacted by policies in the process to close inequity gaps in public benefits. Teresa, welcome to Adelante Leadership. Bienvenida, Teresa. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, Teresa. Thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule. As a city council member, you have been doing an incredible job during a very difficult period for a lot of our government agencies through a pandemic and everything. But even before that, you have worked in labor and other. We just want to have the conversation with you about leadership. What does leadership mean to you? And how did you step into your leadership? Well, I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you. Thank you both for the leadership that you uh, have shown in your advocacy and your work world, and also by bringing this podcast to community uh, so we can continue to learn from folks, especially in this time where the COVID pandemic is still present and many people are still beginning to emerge from the isolation and, and seclusion that occurred during the pandemic. But a lot of folks have not emerged from maybe the depression or the anxiety that they're feeling. And we know that so many community members, including um, BIPOC community members, our Black and Brown community who have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, we are still both dealing with the trauma of um, the economic hardship, the physical hardship of having COVID hit our community um, harder in terms of lost lives and also mm -hmm. lost livelihoods. So mm -hmm. thank you for everything that you're doing to bring people together and share information and build a sense of community as we all are still largely remote. Hearing the discussions you bring um, to the airwaves is really, is really critical. You know, I think that it is exciting to be uh, seen as, as maybe a leader in, in these times like now. Thank you for your compliments. And I also think that sometimes it's the reluctant leaders that often have <laughs> the most change-making approach to the seats that we get into. And um, I'd always been asked to run for office and had said no repeatedly um, for the position like uh, the state legislature and uh, even positions locally, seeing the need, especially in the wake of the Trump election in 2016, seeing the opportunity with not only the seat coming open, but the opportunity to have um, democracy vouchers available and to use those in a time when people really felt like from the national to the local level that their voice didn't count. So we use those democracy vouchers, my election as an organizing opportunity and stepped into this role of running for office and won in 2017 and just got reelected last year. And I will say with the highest percentage of anybody who won in 2021 um, and in a really, in a really tough time in, in our uh, nation and locally 
globally as well. But, you know, I think did so recognizing that there's challenging moments in these positions for sure. And the budget situation that we're currently facing is an incredible challenge. But being in these positions to make sure that we are leading with the folks who are most affected, pulling to the table the people who've been discounted the most and making sure that we're looking through the lens of how can we improve the lives of those who are most marginalized and most harm in the last few years during the pandemic, that that gives me a little bit of optimism and hope for how we can use these seats, these seats of power to really try to address the most pressing issues. And it's a challenge. Sometimes I think it's, it's hard to be in these positions, but also finding opportunity to really say, you know, if it wasn't us, then who? And, and I'm excited to be there. Thanks for having me on your show. Teresa, what has been your leadership journey from the beginning? Who has influenced you? And what have you learned in the process? Well, I think one thing that I always try to do, no matter whether it was public policy advocacy at the Children's Alliance or fighting for labor standards at the Washington State Labor Council, AFL-CIO. And over the last six years in this position, I just added a year, you know, COVID. And the last five years in this position... has been to make sure that we're centering policy changes directly with those who are affected at the table. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the labor movement, we always talk about nothing about us without us. And the same must be true Mm -hmm. in public policy making. So I've been very sort of fierce and determined to make sure that the people who are directly affected are at the decision-making table to talk about what changes they want and to lead with their voice. Mm -hmm. And that has to be true, period. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit of change that I've experienced over the last 20 or so years is um, a little bit more of an acceptance uh, and realization that these building blocks often do still have to be put together piece by piece. And that's a challenge. It's still a challenge for me in my heart of hearts. It's a challenge Mm -hmm. for me to think about the work that we do being incremental because there's such profound need in community and especially for the Latino community, communities of color, having our priorities constantly backburnered is <sighs> is such an injustice that we want to respond immediately and we want yeah. to respond um, with robust policy changes. And that should always be our beacon for where we push towards. But also realizing that sometimes we can build on policy wins and year over year make improvements. Um, and I think that at the city level, that's a really important place for us to think about, like, what are the immediate policy wins that we can put into statute? And then we can keep building on those because we have the opportunity to act with such urgency at the local level. And you don't get that um, as much at the state level in the state legislature or in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example of where um, we had community sitting at the table to make the decisions about what it looked like. That was with our Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, Mm. a series of four pieces of legislation that fought for domestic workers, regardless of whether or not they own their own business as independent contractors, or they're an employee of one of these agencies who deploys folks to do things from cleaning homes to nannying, to taking care of um, yards and gardens, to taking care of elders. Mm -hmm. Domestic workers historically have been excluded from labor standards. Nationally, they're not part of the Labor Standards Act. And why? Because it's often considered, you know, gendered work that mostly women do when it comes Mm -hmm. to caregiving. And it's also largely people of color, Mm -hmm. black and brown folks who've done much of this work in the past. And so it's both racist, sexist exclusions at the national level that we were trying to act upon at the local level. We were able to pass the national, the domestic workers bill of rights in Seattle in, in 2018, after introducing it and passing it, it was only about a six month period. 
that's incredibly fast, wow. right? And we're the only city in the entire nation that has yeah. a domestic workers bill of rights, but we also couldn't do everything right. Folks yeah. really wanted to have a portable benefits program that pays mm-hmm. for health insurance and days yep. off. Absolutely. Oh, yeah the right thing to do and really hard to, to legislate at the local level when we don't have social or safety net services like that, um, or an insurance pool at the local level you can pull from. So we were able to do this historic thing with domestic workers. And then at the same time, you know, I had to realize we couldn't do it all. And that's, that's also hard Mm -hmm. to sit with, but then we created a table where the domestic workers, um, sit at the table along with hiring entities and they are coming up with recommendations to push for that next thing. And Mm -hmm. now we see, uh, Congresswoman Jaya Paul, and previously when she was a senator, Vice President Harris's um, domestic workers legislation, the national domestic le- workers legislation, it is pulling from Seattle's language. Wow. So you know, recognizing that we might not get everything every single time, but that when we put the building blocks out there, we're robust in what we're trying to accomplish. We obviously can compromise on timelines, but we can't cannot compromise on values and who's in and who's out. When we put those building blocks out there, we can keep building on them. But that's been a sort of um, evolution in my thinking Mm -hmm. about how to use um, your power or how to use the theory of change and and how we can fight for things that then need to be built upon. I want to follow up, Teresa, on on what you just mentioned there a minute ago around values. Because we acquainted for several years, I feel like I have a good sense of who you are. And, and I've been so appreciative leading from your values in all those contexts. I think I first met you back when you were at the Labor State Labor Council. I'm wondering if you could share what are some of your core values of your own leadership practice? Yeah, um, I love this question. You know, um, I'm going to get a little wonky on you for a second <laughs> because I do come from like a, a public health background, right? Mm. Thinking about um, the why I do this work, it all comes back to the social determinants of health. And I've spent a lot of my career fighting for health insurance for all, health coverage for all kiddos through the Apple Health Program implementation. You know, we'll continue to fight for a national health insurance system that covers everyone. And um, I think one of the core things that I fight for is like making sure that people, individuals, families, our community is healthy. Mm-hmm. That tends to actually guide the majority of the work that I do because you cannot be healthy if you don't have a place to call home and Mm -hmm. nothing underscore that more than the COVID pandemic. They said, stay home to stay healthy. You can't do that if you don't have a home. You can't do that if you're uh, unstably housed and it's the corner, you know, stone of everything that we continue to fight for more investments in housing and making sure everybody's housed. You cannot be healthy if you're working poverty wages and are constantly in stress about how you're going to put food on the table or keep a roof over your head. And so fighting for higher labor standards, increased wages, um, protections in the workplace, making sure that people are not having to work two or three jobs and never see their family. That is so incredibly bad for your physical health, your Mm -hmm. mental health. And so fighting for good labor standards is something I've always fought for and tied in directly with that is the right to organize Mm -hmm. the right to have a union because you cannot be healthy if you are literally working in a toxic environment that you cannot speak up in, uh, can't voice your concerns because of an abusive boss situation um, and the fear of retaliation and getting fired. So the right to unionize, but also the right to speak up when you see unsafe conditions at the workplace. So whether it's toxic environment or literal toxic 
toxins from your workplace, having safer places to work is something I fight for. The other thing that I think really guides me is making sure that we uh, keep fighting, fighting for the equity, the equity versus the equal investments. And mm. this is something where, you know, maybe it's just sort of become a, a hashtag at this point. We're in this position of like scarce resources in the most wealthy state and the most wealthy city in mm. the, you know, in that state, in the nation, we have the highest um, level of um, regressive taxes in Washington state. And we have some of the wealthiest people who live in Seattle. So now we're being told, Hey, the scarcity mentality is, you know, being forced upon us and we have such limited resources and we have to think about how we apply our investments. And there's been these arguments where, well, you have to do equal investments and you have to make sure that everybody is Mm -hmm. sort of getting a little bit in these times. I don't think that's true. I think we should be looking through an equity lens and seeing who was most impacted, not just by the pandemic, but who's been historically left out of investments and had, you know, no sidewalks in their communities, no grocery stores, lack of access to training programs, education and early learning programs. And so from that equity lens, uh, I hope that that's something that will folks folks will be able to see in sort of the leadership approach I bring in. And then lastly, just again, making sure that we gut check ourselves and holding ourselves accountable because public policy is always about like, you got this one thing passed, the legislation's been signed into law, implementation has to happen. And then you have to ask yourself, where did we fall short? what's next, what wasn't accomplished. And that's where the accountability thing comes in. It's legislation's only good as the piece of paper it's signed on if it's not implemented correctly. And then if implemented and you're still leaving folks out, the opportunity is now to make sure that you go back and do those next things that are that are not happening. And that's where we have to hold ourselves accountable and, and be open to that accountability from the community as well. That's beautiful. If you're giving the example, Teresa, of how our Latine people can hold their values accountability, such an important piece, not only for our representatives, our general councilwoman, but themselves as well to stay accountable and responsible and checking themselves all the time. One of the questions I had for you is who are the important people in your life who have influenced you in your leadership? Mm. Uh, well, my parents, first ones, um, my, my parents are both, um, I would say activists, organizers. My dad taught, taught at Evergreen State College teaching political economy and social change. So, you know, radical theory about getting at the root of why there's injustices, focusing on, um, you know, political science, uh, economic policy in our country, and also thinking about how these policies affect the entire globe and um, the push and pull factors as it relates to immigration um, and migration. My mom is uh, an educator as well. She started an early learning Head Start program and then worked at the Higher Education Coordinating Board and very active in the community as well with support for people in Palestine. And my earliest memories are, you know, going to rallies and protests and um, really calling into question, you know, why... Um, policies were being pushed that not only created injustices in our local communities, but across the globe. And I think that that has just really stuck with me as we think about, you know, how we respond to some of these global crises. Where can we act locally to try to get at some of the root of the injustices that we see? Um, so my parents, for sure. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm really um, appreciative of like leaders like Estela Ortega, she has um, uh, been able to not only grow the impact and importance of places like El Centro um, and expand out those services, but it's always grounded in what the community needs and why she's there and um, and making sure that, you know, she's holding uh, folks accountable, including myself. 
And uh, I'm gonna give a plug for my husband, uh, mm-hmm. who also is um, Latino. He's born in Guatemala and um, a really great person to sort of just uh, gut check where we're going on some policy things and, and has been really influential in helping me sort of stay grounded in these times. And maybe she doesn't know it yet, but our daughter who's three uh, keeps me uh, focused on <laughs> levity and laughing and, and just loving uh, watching her grow. And it's a good reminder for all of us, you know, whether or not we have kiddos or not, like the importance of setting up systems that don't fail the next generation. Oh um, and I, I'm just thankful for, for all of them. So I just wanted to follow up a question on that woman that identify woman out there. How do you balance womanhood, motherhood, and a council woman? How do you balance all those things? Well, you know, I think I'm excited that I have a new title as well. So I have a new title as mom in the last three years. Uh, But (laughs) other new title that I got along with that was the first person to be sitting city council member who had given birth while in office. Yes. So I'm the first in Seattle. That says something, right? Yes. A great question that you asked, because I want more people to have a diverse array of experiences that sit in these positions that can bring the lived experience in from whatever position they're, they're representing. So recognizing like, if I wanted to have daycare around um, my place of employment downtown, there was one place within like a three or four block radius that I had to get access to. And before COVID, we have no idea where our daughter was going to go. Obviously, during COVID, a lot of positions, uh, a lot of things changed, including uh, the closure of some child care centers, but also a lot of folks pulled their kiddos out of child care mm-hmm. because of their economic situation. So it was very stressful leading into uh, 2020, where we had no idea if we were going to get access to the child care that we needed. And we have resources and I have access to transportation and want people to, as I do try to do, take the bus to, mm-hmm. to work all the time to be able to go to their place of employment and still be able to drop off their kids and not worry about whether or not they have to catch two or three buses and whether they're going to get to daycare on time. We need childcare around places Mm -hmm. of employment. And that's something I was actually living. So wanting people to bring in that experience and making sure that it's not um, like divided or that your experience on council isn't devoid of what your experience is at home or in community is critical. Yeah. I, I think that to me, it's, it's been one more good example of like making sure that it's actually not a separate part of my life that we bring Mm. into every conversation, whatever experiences we're having. And also recognize, you know, for myself specifically, like I also come from a position of privilege. I have a Mm -hmm. well-paying job at the city council. I want to recognize that even with those privileges, we were really struggling to figure out where we were going to be able to get childcare and whether or not it was going to be accessible slash affordable. So, you know, these are things that I think that um, should be seen as assets and that we should be making every accommodation possible so that people can be in these positions and not feel like they're having to choose between you know, whatever community commitments they have or familial commitments that they have, and that it is part of the role that we are rewarding people for, for being in these positions. And that's true of staff as well. On my team, uh, we are on, on all um, female identifying team. Wow, yes. folks now have kiddos that they didn't have before when we first started. Yeah. And we want to make sure that we're um, pushing 
for policies that support people, especially um, caregivers, to be able to be in their places of employment and not having to make impossible decisions about choosing work over family um, priorities. So we did that with the Paid Family Leave Act, yes. right? Um, we we did that with Paid Sick and Safe Leave. If you need to take a day off to be with your kiddo to to make sure that they can get to the doctor. That's part of what I help champion well, at the State Labor Council uh, with Initiative uh, 1433. Uh, but also we needed to act with urgency when the pandemic hit. So the, yep. the immediate policies that we passed at the beginning of the pandemic were extending sick leave to any caregiver who needed to take the hours and keep their pay um, when places of childcare were closing, where when schools were closing, that actually wasn't a permitted use. So we changed the policy immediately to say, if there's a public health crisis, you can use your paid sick leave for those. Um, so that was one example that we did in the pandemic. So, you know, uh, having um, been on council and, and talking to um, city employees prior to the pandemic, some of them came to my office and said, there's no policy right now. If you are in a position where you've just lost the baby that you were carrying, or if you've given birth and the, and the baby ends up passing away, our oh, family that's... leave policies are for caring for people. Oh, you get family leave yeah. for caring for that baby or yeah. caring for an elder. Yeah. But if awful. they're right, there's no bereavement policy. You can't awful. take leave if there's like the death of that baby or the person that you've been caring for forever as an elder, as yeah. your, your parent passes away, there's no immediate leave available. So hearing that, we acted quickly and we um, passed bereavement leave, at least for city employees, so that they didn't have to be in a position of not having any leave available when they were uh, dealing with that situation. And so, you know, I just think that broadly taking these experiences and saying, yes, I want people to come in with diverse lived experiences and we have to fold it into the policies that we're making to make sure that uh, anybody else uh, in any sector, in any corner of our city. So so Tani and I noticed a theme running through our season one interviews with folks around the importance of healing and decolonization in our thinking. And I'm just wondering what what thoughts you have on either or both of those in terms of uh, importance in the Latin community leadership space and or what you think for yourself. So I I love this question because I think that it really speaks to like the why we want to do public policy to begin with. And decolonizing public policy should be maybe a theme that we talk about all the time in any aspect of public policy. Public policy might be letters in statute right now, but those were decisions that elected folks made or individuals representing us made in the past. And that means that that policy can change and often should change with the folks who are currently in those positions. We have to look with scrutiny at every single section in statute to see how it reinforces a colonialist mentality. Mm -hmm. And I will give you one example. When we look at the current zoning policies in the city of Seattle, and we see that 75% of the land is currently zoned only for single use, single detached family houses and not uh, multiple homes on one structure or apartments or uh, flats or townhouses or row houses. We are excluding people from being able to live in this city. And that was an intentional policy in the 30s, mm-hmm. in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. And it continues to be the statute of today mm-hmm. because it was explicit racist redlining, restrictive zoning covenants, exclusionary lending policies that were 
coupled together to try mm-hmm. to prevent folks of color from being in certain areas of our city. Mm-hmm. And if you lay over our existing zoning maps of today in Seattle in 2022 with what existed in the 50s and the 70s, it is still, still embedded within our code of the city where people can build certain types of houses. And who had access to the capital to build those kinds of houses and to buy them it was absolutely more wealthier, whiter folks. And so that's a great example of where we've said we need to do an analysis through a racial justice lens of why this still exists. And I love the language that you used. And decolonize our policy. Let's not act like it, you know, these statutes have to be around forever or that they just happen to come together. Often it was intentional policies built into our public systems that we now have to be intentional about undoing and uh, redoing with an equity lens. And I, I, I think that that's exactly what we're trying to do in our housing and zoning policy discussions. Great way of putting uh, how we need to decolonize our policies and our, our government, our white supremacy, developed country, obviously. You you mentioned it before, Teresa, about our regressive way of taxing in Washington for being Washington so open, so progressive. <laughs> Taxes are so aggressive. Again, just like you mentioned in the uh, in the zoning, it's also taxing the less people that have more wealth in their back, taxing them the same as the uh, the other people that have, you know, trust funds and right. and inheritance and all that good stuff. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also um shocking, I think, to people in other parts of the country to hear that we don't have an income tax in Washington state. And in addition to that, we don't have a corporate income tax. So these huge corporations that are right here in our backyard, you know, we're now trying to do something about that. With the progressive payroll tax jumpstart Seattle that I passed in 2020, we're saying it's actually good for local businesses if folks have a place to call home. It's good for local businesses and our local economy if we're investing in infrastructure and investing in green new infrastructure opportunities in Seattle. So yes, we are going to tax these corporations who have more than you know, a million dollars in Seattle yes. payroll and who have some of the higher salaries over $150,000, $160,000 in salaries, we're going to tax you because it's actually good for our local economy to create the stability so that we can invest in housing, equitable development, Green New Deal investments, and really reinvest in our local economy in the, in the wake of COVID. And that is a good thing for everyone, including um, folks from the business community, but especially good for our most vulnerable who haven't been able to benefit from a, a reliable progressive tax structure uh, in the past. And, and it is actually preventing us from entering into austerity this year. We are not going to have a budget in the red only due to the passage of Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Ooh, Tax. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. And Teresa, final word before we let you go back to your important work at the city. What advice do you have for encouraging other Latine emerging leaders? Um, I think stay true to your values and it will lead you to whatever position um, you may want in one day. I never thought that I was going to be in city council. I never thought I was going to be a labor leader within the Washington State Labor Council. I just kept working on the things that I was passionate about. As I mentioned, passionate about healthy individuals and healthy communities. And that's, I think, the most important thing to do. And I think we should be unapologetic Mm -hmm. about our commitments to racial equity as well in every sector, any place of work that you're in, whatever your 
organizing path is for the future, you know, continuing to be unapologetic about keeping race and, and racial equity at the forefront of your analysis um, is, is an important thing to do. That is uh, something to be applauded. And, and I think that if we stay true to those passions, uh, we will uh, achieve that racial equity component, but don't, don't ever let anybody let you put that on the back burner. There you go. Thank you. Thank you so much, Teresa, por compartir un poco de tu tiempo uh, ocupado y que la gente sepa más, un poco más de ti. Y muchas gracias por estar aquí con nosotros. Pues muchas gracias a ustedes y llámame o escríbame si necesitan algo. Estoy aquí para servir a ustedes y estamos aquí juntos en esta lucha para más um, seguridad y justicia en nuestro mundo. Eso. Thank you, Teresa. Thanks, Thank everyone. Teresa. Thank you for joining us for another episode with Adelante Leadership. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Teresa Mosqueda. Our next episode is in Spanish. Peter, can you please tell us who do we have next in our next episode? Nancy Salguero McKay, Latin community leader who has dedicated her work to creating change in community through the power of art, culture, and identity. We welcome your comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Apple. For more resources and information, visit our website, www.adelanteleadership.com. We want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and your Latin leadership story. Muchas gracias por escuchar a Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning in and stepping into your Latin leadership.